Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Conor O'Gara. Will is still in Europe, but a ton to get to today, including the huge news that we got over the weekend. Bobby Petrino is calling plays at AM. Big, big news. I'm sure everybody was talking about nonstop. Uh, just kidding. Not going to do a full reaction to that. You guys are probably a little sick of me here, hearing me talk about that. Um, you might be a little sick of the actual big news over the weekend that the Pac-12 is dead. It's not the only thing that we're going to talk about today because we do have a great interview coming up with Jeff Collins. And because of some of the realignment fatigue, I thought it'd be fun to just do, instead of bold and brash or figuring out, just do one thing I'm excited about, responses from our listeners, actual football talk, things that we can really get fired up for instead of realignment talk. But we do have to talk about this because... College football just changed, and I'm not sure anybody's actually happy about it. By now, if you're listening to this, you know the Pac-12 is dead. Oregon State, Cal, Stanford, Washington State are the last four people left on the Titanic, which crashed into a massive iceberg at the end of last week. Some would say it crashed when former Pac-12 commissioner Larry Scott decided that he didn't want to create a bidding war for the Pac-12 network rights. And if you saw the clip that Trey Wallace tweeted out, you saw Larry Scott saying back in 2018 that the Pac-12 was going to have the most flexibility by 2024 because it would have all of its rights back and that it could pivot in this ever-changing industry. And instead, by 2024, the Pac-12 will be dead. Others would say that the second new, the the basically the second Pac-12 commissioner George Klyevkov, who took over for Larry Scott, he inherited the mess. You could probably point to the moment that the Pac-12 was in trouble and that he was steering straight into the iceberg was when he said on that very infamous Zoom call that the alliance didn't need a signed contract not to poach other schools because it had an agreement with three conference commissioners and 41 university presidents and chancellors. In hindsight, I think we can all say probably needed that contract. Would have been a good thing to have for the Pac-12. It's ironic that the alliance of all things, if it were actually real and not just this lame thing that they concocted, if it were real, it probably could have saved the Pac-12 as we know it. Or maybe it would have at least delayed its demise, which happened in August, because instead of being able to go to his league presidents with a contract that was actually respectable, Klyevkov gave them Apple TV for a fraction of what the Big Ten and the SEC will be making. And he tried to do so at the 11th hour when we know USC, UCLA, Colorado, they had already left. So Oregon and Washington, even though there was one point where I was like, oh, maybe this isn't going to happen. No, they are indeed going to join the Big Ten. Arizona, Arizona State, and Utah are off to the Big 12. And everyone's kind of upset about it. It's weird. Those departing schools won, I guess, by virtue of not losing out on tens of millions of dollars in TV revenue. But I don't think any of those schools in their ideal world wanted to leave. I don't even think USC and UCLA wanted to leave. I think everyone involved will adjust, but we already talked about how much it's going to suck for those schools to travel, especially the non-football sports, the scheduling nightmares that are about to unfold. It's not going to be a picnic. That didn't matter for those schools when it came to realigning and trying to get off of the sinking ship that was the Pac-12. They were willing to take on those increased travel costs, the increased headache, and really the PR hit from the outside world, and maybe even their own fans. And I'm not sure that I blame them 
Because when you have a chance to make triple what your current conference's TV contract is, if, by the way, that's only if the unproven TV subscription model and live college football rights works out, which that's what Apple TV is going to be. They're going to have to hit all these different requirements for those subscriptions. Uh, sorry, but conference pride, it kind of gets thrown out the window. I don't really blame those schools. Everyone, everyone seems like they want someone to blame in all of this. And I guess it makes sense. But if these moves were all about just winning more football games, I think the consensus would be, yep, this is just the price of winning. And I think a lot of us would be okay with it. But that's not the case at all. This isn't about winning. Oregon and Washington could have run the Pac-12. They could have probably traded off automatic bids to get into the expanded playoff, which who knows what that's going to look like now with the auto bids and how that's going to shake out. But instead, what did those two schools do? They joined an 18-team league with tons more depth. And make your jokes about the Big Ten. They're, I, I'm going to get to some of the alarming Big Ten stats you still are going to have a much more difficult chance winning that league and getting an auto bid or even being good enough to make the playoff. But that wasn't really what this was about. This is all being done because in ways that we've never seen before, important people found ways to monetize big revenue college athletics. This isn't a generational thing. If they could have done so 40 years ago, they would have signed up for this. They would have. But back in 1984, they were just trying to figure out how to get away to prevent the NCAA from controlling all of those TV contracts and limiting how many games you could see your team on TV. I still can't even imagine that. Okay, Maybe that's just millennial perspective here. I grew up in a different world of college football. And even as someone who grew up close in the suburbs of Chicago to Notre Dame, that just had a different feel because when they're on NBC all the time, you just have a different understanding of what college football rights look like and you don't necessarily affiliate it in the same sort of way. But your team, like, think about this. In, in this pre-TV rights era back in the 80s, your team might have a legitimate shot at a national title, but they're only going to get maybe two or perhaps three if they're really good cracks for you to watch them on national TV. You're going to the game, you're listening on radio, you're trying to figure out other ways to be able to consume your team. And it's no wonder why the Heisman was a Lifetime Achievement Award and why even true freshman Herschel didn't get on national TV until November. Yeah, again, that's pre-TV rights boom. That's during a time in which the NCAA is controlling those contracts. In that respect, it is a lot better that the NCAA isn't sitting there controlling all of these contracts. That's that's a positive. But at the same time, we're watching the trade-off. We're seeing that play out before our eyes. It took four decades after the Supreme Court's ruling of the NCAA versus Board of Regents of the University of Oklahoma for us to get to this point. That is total imbalance. Some like the Big Ten and the SEC, just kind of figured this out, figured out what the, the, those negotiations should look like. And others kind of had a bit of an up and down ride with this, like the ACC and the Big 12, who have made some good moves and some not so good moves during the last decade plus. And then there's the one conference who, quite honestly, botched this in historic fashion. That's the Pac-12. I was talking about all of this to a friend the other day, and he grew up in Corvallis. He still roots for Oregon State, but in high school, he moved to Georgia. He went to Georgia. He's now living in a world in which both of his teams are arguably in the best spots that they've ever been in. I mean, you could even say that about Oregon State. I think they're like, if they have double digit wins this year, it'll be the first time they've ever done that. 
consecutive seasons in school history. But those two schools couldn't be on more opposite ends of the Power Five spectrum. He asked me, he's like, hey, why can't all the Power Five schools just form one big conference, split the revenue from the TV contract, and have it all make geographical sense so that we're not having these wild cross-country conferences that are just truly baffling and they're going to cost so much money. I could give you a million reasons why that won't happen, but it basically comes down to this. College football exists in a capitalist world, a very, very capitalist world. We're tricked into believing that because they play for the same prize, that they're all under the same umbrella, when in reality, everyone is on their own to negotiate a TV contract. And that's why the Pac-12 had the issues that it had. We should think of the SEC, the Big Ten, the ACC, the Big 12, and the Pac-12, and yes, the other FBS conferences. We should just think of them like major sports leagues. There's the NFL, the NBA, MLB, NHL, MLS, so on. You get it. Just because the NFL negotiates a media deal for a gazillion dollars doesn't mean that the NHL is going to have that kind of leverage at the negotiating table. There's different interests and different people controlling that interest. And yeah, it probably didn't help the Pac-12 during this time in which TV rights boomed that uh, wasn't exactly must-see TV. It hasn't won a football or men's basketball national championship since 2004. But there are plenty of passionate fans out West. There are. There, there really are. And for those saying that there's no talent out there, I would remind you that the state of California still exists. And I guarantee you that your team has some sort of California representation on its roster. This isn't just about wins and losses. It's really not very much about wins and losses. The Pac-12's death isn't as simple as not winning titles. Here's the irony of this entire situation. If you're maybe just casually listening to this, you're like, oh, God, Connor, I'm really fatigued on the realignment stuff. I get it. I totally understand it. But now is the time when you should really dial in and listen to this. The Big Ten has been at the forefront of this TV rights movement, right? Like that dates back to really the launch of Big Ten Network in 2007. When that annual story of TV revenue distribution comes out, it's the Big Ten leading the pack, not the SEC, who is ultimately cutting the biggest checks to its schools. Yet if you look at the big four sports, that is big four revenue drivers, football, men's and women's basketball, baseball, how many national titles has the Big Ten won in school years that began in the 21st century? It's two. Two. You remember both of them because they're both Ohio State football national championships, one of which came after the late pass interference call against Miami. The other came in that first playoff when many felt that the Buckeyes should have been left out. TCU should have gotten in. You remember both of those. So yes, the four big revenue driving sports, the Big Ten has just two national titles there in school years that started in the 21st century. And you've, you've, you can even do this. Make the decision to retroactively add USC UCLA, Oregon, Washington. Let's throw them all in there. Just pretend that they were Big Ten teams in the 21st century. That number is still just five national titles. The SEC, meanwhile, 31 national titles in those four sports. Yeah. What the SEC has shown is that the Big Ten earning the most TV money doesn't mean that it's the best conference. Not at all. It's a nice little flex, though I don't even think fans like flexing about that because they don't really see the upside. Not not really. You know what's a better flex? Making five to ten million less per school per year and still winning a ton of championships in the sports that you and your friends can actually watch on TV and brag about. What this is all proof of 
is that it's not about winning championships or even the student athlete experience as Eli Drinkwitz very passionately outlined over the weekend. A lot of people getting on board with that quote. Teams don't realign to win championships. Teams, universities, whatever you want to call them, they realign so that they can be compensated when they don't. It's a whole lot better to be Rutgers than to be Oregon State right now. And just because your school is on the positive side of this current realignment wave, it doesn't mean that it will be a decade from now. That's a scary thing to think about, right? Because everybody's like, oh, hey, I'm in one of the big two. I'm feeling good. I I don't think this is going to happen, but maybe is it possible that there could eventually be some elite of the elite 20 team conference who just wants to have a record setting TV contract, even if it means you're going to have a different perspective on what success looks like. We were talking about that with, with soccer and you know, what, what does the premier league look like? And you know, what are they going to have this, this elite, this elite soccer league wherein this type of thing is tolerated. And then there was obviously all that pushback and there would be so much pushback in college football. And my pushback as to why that couldn't exist would be, well, you need the Rutgers, the Vanderbilts of the world, because those teams play a pivotal role in adding to those win columns and making sure that elite teams with very college football centric economies don't go a month without a win. I talk about bad vibes. Those are bad vibes. But you could counter that point by saying, well, where would Oregon and Washington have won more games in 2024? The Big Ten or the very watered down Pac-12? That's not even a question. You know the answer to that. It's also not a question that with realignment, money is way more important than wins and losses. It just is. Shout out to Jimbo Fisher who pointed out a very self-aware comment from him. He said, unfortunately, we're in a time now that everybody is fighting over the dollar. This is the part where I pull out the Iowa notepad. I remind Fisher that his buyout isn't probably quite at $76.8 million if we're still dealing with 1980s TV contracts. And yes, I understand that universities don't pay buyouts. Boosters pay those. But it's a whole lot easier for a university to sign off on those buyouts when TV contracts can fund other things like facility upgrades. Just want to throw that out there. You've got athletic departments like A&M who are, as Fisher put it, fighting over the dollar And also in $279 million worth of debt, if you saw the tweet from Sportico, shout out to Cal, who is in $439 million in debt, their athletic department. Not ideal. You can work against outstanding debt if you have those revenue streams, and none right now is more lucrative than getting to a conference with a $70 million TV contract. And I understand not everybody's getting that full share immediately. What's scary for athletic departments, and not just for Cal, is that it's never been more expensive to keep an athletic department afloat. And not just because of cross-country flights and support staffs and those ballooning, but this feels like we're in the beginning of the pay-for-play era. Something that we've talked about a lot, Matt Hayes brought this point up multiple, like two, two or three years ago on this show. It's so, so ironic because we keep hearing about the need for federal legislation for universal NIL rules, right? That's a very popular topic of conversation that quite honestly, talk about fatigue. I'm tired of that. I hope that goes away when football actually starts. But everybody keeps talking about the lack of rules. And according to some, that's what's ruining the sport. And I'm just kind of over that. I am a little bit when you see these contracts getting thrown around. Yeah, like it would be more convenient 
It would also be more convenient for Washington and Oregon to not have to make cross-country flights for nearly their entire conference schedules coming up. But this notion that NIL freedom is killing college athletics, it's kind of outdated, kind of is. At least some of that, some of NIL is merit-based. Realignment really isn't merit-based because if it were, the Pac-12 would have a chance to save itself with what should be a really interesting year in the conference in 2023, but it doesn't have a chance to save itself. This is the last season of that. Some will say this is the last season of college football that they like, college football that they know it because of playoff expansion, because of realignment. It's really taking shape, obviously, next year. Others like myself will say that's an easy thing to say in August, but tell me that you're not watching this sport when September hits. You will be. That doesn't mean that you you, you support how or why realignment is happening because I don't think a lot of people do at all. It just means that it's more of a bummer than a deal breaker. I don't know that people listening to this lost any sleep over the Pac-12 dying, a very painful TV-based death, but I do know that this was a significant shakeup in the sport that was 40 years in the making. All right, let's kick it to Jeff Collins, a new friend he is. Uh, It was great to be able to chat with him ahead of his first non-coaching season in a long time, though he may or may not definitely have some media things that are that are in the works so we're going to be hearing more from jeff collins this year some great stories sprinkled in there as well a guy who has been to a lot of different places so here's jeff now excited to be joined by a very special guest it is former georgia tech coach and current free agent jeff collins uh jeff i want to start with with our introduction because so when i texted you uh to, to set this up you're like yeah i would love to come on I'm going on vacation with my family, but, you know, when we come back, um, you know, we'll, we'll set this up because I'm a big fan. And sometimes I'll get people that that will say that. And it's not that I don't believe them when they say that they're a big fan. But when people, you know, throw that out there, it can just mean like, oh, I've heard of you. Occasionally right. I read your stuff. You, however, texted me a pic of you and your family at Disney. Yep. And you're rocking an OG Saturday Down South hat that predates my arrival. And outside right. of my boss, I'm our longest tenured employee at SDS. You are currently wearing this hat right now yep. for just the listening audience at home. How in the world did you obtain that hat? I, I think it was back when I was the defense coordinator at Mississippi State and was on the website all the time. That's when it was all just website-based or uh, Twitter feeds or whatever. And I just thought the merch was, was hot. And uh, this has actually been one of my favorite hats for going on 10, 12 years probably now. Wow. That yep. that's incredible because we had like a few of those kicking around, I think like 2015, 2016. And then they, we, we just stopped producing them. And for whatever reason, like you, it's very difficult to find anybody wearing them. So like when you say you are a true fan of SDS, like you've yep. read our stuff. Yeah. Like I, I know you're not BSing at all. Do you consider yourself uh, an SEC guy as someone who grew up in Georgia, someone who, you know, obviously spent six years in the conference as well? Seven. Seven. Oh, gosh. My bad. <laughs> it's all good. I was on Coach Saban's first Alabama staff. That's right. And Yep. So seven years. Back when it was uh, 12 national championships. That's when I was there. Um, but yeah, I love the SEC. Love uh, love everything about it. You know, I think it's uh, there's not a big argument, but arguably the, the best college football conference in the country. And, uh, you know, just such wonderful memories and times of being in that league. And, uh, you know, some of my coach, closest friends uh, are still coaching there. And, you know, some of my guys are, are playing there. Okay, so let's go back to that. First okay. year, first Saban staff ever. 
you had a very unique position. The director of player personnel is, it's like, it's one of those jobs that I think that people maybe that are on the outside looking in don't understand how many things you have that are on your plate that you just kind of have to take care of. And at Alabama, Saban's first staff where he's overhauling so many different things and trying to change the culture, do everything. Um, it, it, it amazes me that, that anybody could take on so many things. You have to be super organized, probably. Be honest, though. Did your job uh, ever include making sure that Saban have his little he, that he had his little Debbies, or was it just making sure also that you know he's got his Mountain Dew over here, he's got his Red Man over here? Because we know that was a staple of his office, right? Uh, so a lot of lot of parts to unpack in that one. Um, so we have oatmeal cream pies at our house. And I'll slip them in when my, my when my wife's uh, when my wife is not watching, and uh, myself and my daughter we call them Coach Saban cookies. So whenever <laughs> I give her one, we call them Coach Saban cookies, and she eats them. She loves them. Uh, if I go pick her up from something, you know, Daddy, do you have any of Coach Saban's cookies? Anyway, um, but no, I never had to feel he's got a jar. Uh, he's got a, a room in between his office uh, and the staff room where he's got this big jar filled with oatmeal cream pie. So I obviously didn't have to do that. Um, but you know, it was a good day if he had some good oatmeal cream pies, uh, in him. So, um, and it's funny, the, uh, next Friday, uh, I'm doing a speaking engagement in Nashville. So it is, uh, all the recruiting in division one football, um, all the directors of player personnel, all of those things get together in Nashville and kick off a big, uh, two to three day weekend in Nashville talking about all the things that are involved in the sport uh, in terms of recruiting evaluations and all those things. And uh, I'm getting to be the headline speaker because I was actually the very first director of player personnel ever in existence uh, back in the day for Chan Gailey. Yep. And, uh, you know, so I take a lot of pride in it and uh, Coach Saban's first one as well. So was that a position you invented? Uh, or it was is. it like, okay, so, so explain, t- tell me how you invent a position like that, because now it's such a, a big part of the college football yep. vernacular. I had no idea that you were at the forefront of that. Yep. So, uh, I was at Georgia tech as a graduate assistant, tight ends coach, uh, a lot of heavy in recruiting. Then I go, uh, be the defense coordinator at Western Carolina for four years and always want to get back, uh, to division one ball, ACC, SEC, all those kind of things. And Chan Gailey, uh, reached out to me to see if I wanted to come and be the director of on-campus recruiting, director of high school relations, because that's all they had back then. You had two spots, director of high school relations, director of on-campus recruiting, and wanted me to come uh, do that for him. Well, it was a way for me to get back into, you know, Division One football. So I got offered the job at the convention in Dallas, Texas, and Culloween, North Carolina, is about a 10, 12-hour drive from Dallas, Texas. And on the way back, it's me and Matt Rule. Um, I can't even, whatever beat-up car we were driving, I can't remember. But it was me, Matt Rule, John Turner, and we drove all the way back from Dallas, Texas uh, to Culloway, North Carolina, talking about that job and should I take it, should I stay, whatever. And I didn't want to go in one of those two titles. So I just called Coach Gailey once we got back, and I said, you know, I need to have something in case I do stay in this role, do a really good job in this role. I want it to lead to something else. Well, I knew that role existed in pro football. It didn't in college football. And I said, Coach, do you mind if I call myself the director of player personnel? He goes, you can call yourself whatever you want. Uh, just come over here and run recruiting for us. And we had the 12th ranked class in the country. 
And uh, then Coach Saban hired me to come over to Tuscaloosa. And for a while, it's it's since been bested. Uh, we had arguably the number one class in the history of college football. It's since been beaten. But at the time with Julio and Mark Ingram and Dante Hightower, Marcel Darius, and on and on and on, it was a pretty good class. What was the, the job description with Saban? Because – Gosh, it feels like such a catch-all, or at least that's what it's become in you know the recruiting side of it. That that's such a, a big part of what you're doing early on. But what was what was that like getting that to-do list from him right. and seeing it's probably a mile long because of all the different things that he likes to have control of? Yeah, it, it, the biggest piece for me at the time was the recruiting piece, making sure it was organized, bringing us into the new digital age. Um, Facebook had just been opened. Uh, public because at the time it had just been uh, you had to be a part of the university before you could, you know, expand your network or whatever else. So we ushered in the Facebook age with that. Uh, the previous year uh, when I was with Coach Gailey, it was all MySpace. I'm sure mm. a lot of listeners don't know what a MySpace <laughs> is, but MySpace got the 12th ranked class in the country uh, to come to Atlanta anyway. Um, but just, you know, modernizing everything within his parameters and what he wanted, his infrastructure, and all those kind of things. Um, but I was telling the story the other day, the director of player personnel at the University of Alabama. So in the staff meeting room, it's a, it's a long table. Coach Saban sits at one end, right when he walks out of his office, sits down right there. On the direct other end, staring right at him all day, every day during the meetings was me. So the director of player personnel is eye to eye with him for the entirety of the staff meeting and offense and defensive staffs on the side, whatever. And, uh, but it was a great learning experience for me. I wanted to be a defensive coach as well. So that was kind of my gateway into getting on the field and being a position coach, but I had to find different avenues, you know, to do that. So coach let me be a part of the defensive staff as well. I couldn't coach on the field, anything like that, but I got to be in all the meetings um, thank goodness we had blackberries and could, you know, make sure everything was going the way it's supposed to go. Um, but so from 730 in the morning, he walked in until 10 staff meeting. I was in the defensive meetings with Coach Saban. 10 o'clock to 11, we'd have a full staff meeting. Then from 11 until we went to meetings, uh, unit meetings, team meetings, whatever it would be. I was still with Saban as the recruiting dude. So I had to be a defensive dude all morning. Then the middle of the day, I had to be with him for recruiting for two and a half hours watching tape, then go out to practice. And uh, it was a great learning experience. And I, I dearly love him uh, and respect him uh, through the roof. No 2 a.m. phone calls from Saban, right? Like he's not he's not hitting you up for that. Like because I've heard I've heard some stories about like, yeah, you, you'll just get those calls. And it's not necessarily like, oh, this guy is going to bail out of jail. I think that's what a lot of people assume. But it can be anything that just comes up. So the, and I don't think I've ever told this story publicly. Um, and it's nothing bad, but uh, nothing's going to go viral, but I still distinctly remember it, it was because we were building that thing from scratch, right? The process, all of those things were happening in real time. Uh, so there was a lot of work to get done. And so he and I were together all day, every day. And then uh, it's about time for vacation, end of camps, end of June. And he made a big deal. Hey guys, enjoy your family. Uh, you guys have, have earned it. You know, once we get back, it's on. So I'm not going to call you. I'm not going to, you don't have to worry about checking your phones. I'm not going to call you while you're on break. Enjoy it. Enjoy your family. He gave the speech like five times over the course of the last week before we went on vacation. And I'll never forget this. 
7.30 a.m., the very first day of our vacation, I'm getting a call from an unknown number, and it's coach. And first thing coach was my, hey, man, I thought you said you weren't going to call us. Uh, I don't think that applied to me and my role uh, at the time. So that was a uh, learning experience as well. What did he say to you? I don't know. It was something about recruiting or uh, A.J. McCarron or whoever whoever we were trying to recruit at the time, Mark Ingram or whatever, uh, making sure uh, they were ready to roll. I don't know. That makes sense. And just an unknown number. I mean, that's that's perfectly fitting. Coming, coming Perfect. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I want to dig into your time as a defensive coach in the SEC. Um, I, I was telling you earlier, I had Mullen on uh, earlier sure. uh, on the last episode. And we've all seen kind of his interactions with Todd Grantham on, on the sideline. But okay. I, I at, at the same time, like being his defensive coordinator at Mississippi State, was he someone who truly gave you that total autonomy on, on that side of the ball and just kind of let you run? Because I feel like there are certain coaches who they like to micromanage. They like to, you know, point this out and this out and they have their hands in everything. Right. Because when you get that head coach who's an offensive play caller as well, it almost feels like those can be the most empowering for a defensive minded coach like yourself. Sure. And Dan was great. We had four great years together, uh, won a ton of games, played great defense. Um, you know, I consider him a friend. Uh, the very first time Dan Mullen and I met was on the Brooklyn Bridge. So I was a graduate assistant at Fordham University in the Bronx. He was a graduate assistant at Columbia University. Uh, and we had to do a film exchange where you take the videotape and drive it and hand the videotape to the other GA. The GA hands you their videotape. He and I met on the Brooklyn Bridge. It was a 10-minute uh, interaction, and it led to me being the defense coordinator in the SEC because wow. there was just something about us that clicked, and the four years that I was in Starkville with him, uh, it, it was awesome because um, everybody knows Dan is an offensive guru, great play caller, designer of offense, and he did that uh, while we were there as well. But what Dan, I thought, was, was really good, and I tried to do this when I was a head coach, uh, relative to the offensive coaches was we got to practice two hour practice, whatever uh, we come in, the defensive staff would watch it. He would go in there with the offensive staff uh, and watch the practice from an offensive lens. But the entire time he's in there, he's just tagging plays, um, whether it be for Dak, for the quarterback usage, or, you know, to have discussions with me and the defensive staff. Um, and then at the end of the night, when they were done watching the tape, uh, somebody would come get me. Hey, Jeff, coach wants to see y'all. And so we had to go into his office and we had to watch the tape. Some days he'd be in a good mood and it's just kind of, um, you know, come and go. And, hey, we could have done better on this. What were you thinking there? Hey, I really like this. And some days it was the worst thing, worst practice that ever happened in the history of practices. And you've got to go in there and, uh, you know, explain what happened and, you know, how you're going to get it fixed and those kind of things. But it was a great learning experience because you got to experience the things that he's seen from an offensive perspective and you as the defensive play caller, you get to hear it, but also the defensive staff is in the room. So they're hearing the same things coming from his mouth. And, you know, so we're all on the same page. It was, it was a good experience. What's the story from that, that 2014 season, your last season there that, that, that kind of stands out where you guys get to number one yeah. in the country in the first playoff bowl? It, it, it was it was great. Um, and I, I said this the other day, every single day for four years, it was fourth and one every single hour of every single day. You were in that building, you were in the offseason workouts, whatever it is. Um, but 
the 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 guys that Dan and the recruiting staff had targeted and got after the Chris Jones of the world, Bernard McKinney's, Darius Slays, on and on and on. Uh, it, it was time for us to be really good, and you know, had developed them and had a culture uh, that was tough and it was physical, and uh, it, it, we just peaked at the right time, and uh, we we had a great season, had great defenses, and uh, you know, Dak was our quarterback. There's I actually texted Dak uh, today. So just, uh, great experience. We had a great run. What's, uh, what, what's, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. What, what's that relationship like? Because you, you go on the opposite side of Dak for all those years and it's kind of like, Hey, you guys are just going to battle. And at the same time, right. like you're probably super grateful for, for the moments that he was able to, to provide a, a program that obviously meant a lot to you. Yeah. And it, his first year when he first got there, cause, cause Dak was, a diamond in the rough. He was a developmental guy, but he just had it inside of him. Unbelievable physical abilities too, but he just had that it factor. And I still remember, I don't think it was very long, but he was, he was the scout team quarterback for a little bit. And just the level of competitiveness. I mean, he's going against Fletcher Cox and Jonathan Banks and, uh, you know, Darius Slay, you know, real dudes. And he's just giving it to him. And then he becomes the starter and, you know, one of my favorite Dak stories of all time. Uh, Matt Bayless was our head strength coach, uh, recently retired as the head strength coach in Notre Dame. Phenomenal strength coach. I mean, just absolutely amazing. We would have these specialty workouts in the offseason. And so it'd be three flights. We'd have a 6 a.m. We'd have a 7.30. We'd have a 9, whatever it would be. And they were, they were relentless workouts. Well, Dak would come to the first one. And he would crush the workout. Well, then he would come back and do the next workout with the linebackers and the tight ends and the running backs. And I still remember being, and I was still relatively a young coach, watching, nobody told him to do it. It was just in his DNA and in his nature. Then the lineman would go last, and there's Dak right there with the lineman uh, doing the workouts and encouraging the guys. And I'm like, this, this is the dude. Just an unbelievable competitor, worker, human being um that i was just blessed to, to get to be around him and i still remember one of the things he posted iron sharpens iron was him and i after practice hugging it up you know after we had just probably gotten after it for two hours you know during a scrimmage or a practice but just such a healthy level of respect uh day in and day out and that's kind of the environment that dan fostered uh as well how was uh talk about dan as a boss how was jim McElwain? as a boss. Cause I feel like everybody has a different impression of, of, of him and kind of, you know, everybody talks about the shark stuff and, and it's kind of overlooked that guys, guys, a good head football coach. He just needed to be in the right surroundings. How was he when, you know, in, in your time working with him at Florida? Amazing. Now we had back-to-back top five defenses, you know, so that, that that's, you know, the, the relationship is probably going to be good uh, when you're that good defensively. And I was the, the defensive play caller. But this is another, you know, SEC history. Um, our first year at Alabama, uh, we go through the season, and Coach has me and our uh, one of our assistant athletic directors keep a book. And what we do, what we did, is we would keep a book of what offensive coaches are doing really good, young, up-and-coming coaches, what defensive coaches are doing really good, having really good seasons, or having really good track records. And I didn't know what this task was, you know, I did it because coach asked me to do it. So I'm going to do that thing at a high level. Um, but, you know, 
we were compiling the book and, you know, we would put, spend some time on it, um, you know, throughout the week, throughout the season and just track certain guys. Well, toward the end of the season, I started really studying Jim McElwain and his background and what he was doing at Fresno State and just his history in the NFL and all these things and was really impressed. You know, coach didn't care if I was impressed, but I was impressed by what he was doing. And at the end of the season, uh, the offensive coordinator left and coach goes, hey, I need to see the book. And I just thought I was just doing it as just an exercise. But now he wants to see the work that Mia was Jeff Puritan, who's now the AD at uh, Arkansas State. And he wanted to see what we had, you know, come up with. And so I presented the book. Here's names and different names. And um, so I stamped Jim McElwain. And he came in and he crushed on the interview and I, I was fired up that I played a small role in it. And uh, then he and I got close because right when he got there, I was the one that had to send him on the road to recruit. So, you know, he's coming in there and, you know, I'm sending him on this plane to see this quarterback, to see this receiver. And so, you know, we're from the beginning really close. And then we continued that relationship uh, all the way through our time at Florida. And I'm actually trying to, uh, go see them open up this year uh, at Michigan State. So uh, trying to go see that game, you know, to kick off the season uh, to show support for my guy. But back to your original question, Jim McElwain is absolutely amazing. And uh, in my career, I was blessed to work for some great coaches, right? Coach Saban, uh, Dan Mullen, uh, George O'Leary that are, you know, pretty big time in this game. And the biggest thing I learned from Mac was be yourself. Have the you, – you've been around good people. You know what it's supposed to look like, how it's supposed to be done. Be yourself while you're doing it. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, that was a, a thing that I leaned on, um, you know, when I was the head coach at Temple and then at the last place I was at for sure. One of the great what-ifs of the 2010s that I think people forget about way too much is what Florida could have been if Will Greer didn't have the suspension. and Or even if McElwain had just gone all in with him as the starter, and I realized he had the suspension, he would have come back in the middle of 2016. What do you remember about that whole situation? Because that start that you guys got off to 2015, it was like, it was appointment viewing, and there was something special that was building, and then boom, just like that, things changed. Yeah, and uh, you know, I talked about this the other day too. Um, the Ole Miss game... You know, they came into the swamp and uh, we won 38 to 10. Uh, great night in the swamp. It was rocking on national TV and a defense was playing lights out. The offense was playing lights out. And uh, I think it was after that game that 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 happened. And uh, Will's a great player, a great young man. And, uh, you know, think the world of him. Um, but that, that that is a definite that is a definite what if because the week before, Old Miss had hung 50 on Bama and won. And I think Bama goes on. I don't know. I don't can't remember who won it that year. Um, Bama. Yeah. They did win it. Yeah. Yeah. So Bama won it. Old Miss, you know, beat them. Then we, anyway. Um, but there's, there's some old, uh, there's some what ifs. Uh, I saw Will uh, in the Carolina Panthers weight room. This would probably be four or five years ago, maybe. And, uh, you know, we had conversation and, you know, had some, you know, shared some honest moments with each other. And uh, so. It's interesting because when you left Florida, you know, 
Florida had just won three in a row against Georgia, and there was this this feeling of of momentum, and, and they looked like they were going to be in control of that rivalry. And now it feels like Georgia set up to dominate Florida, like the Spurrier teams used to dominate Georgia back in the '90s. You saw Georgia up close, and you kind of watched this transformation happen. I know somebody like yourself that's consumed college football for such a long time. What, what's your takeaway been from from seeing what Kirby's built at Georgia? Yeah, I'm really proud of Kirby. He and I were together at 2007 uh, at Bama and have been have been friends ever since. <clears throat> um, so this spring was the first time uh, in seven years that I or ever really been to go to go see another um, you know team during spring ball. And uh, you know, so obviously uh, the last four years I wasn't you know invited to come over to watch Georgia's practice. Being that would have been weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I got to go over to practice and Kirby w- was kind to give me all access to the meetings, uh, the unit meetings, the team meeting, special team meeting and uh, on the, on the practice field. And, and I was just impressed by the level of atten- intensity, the attention to detail, the competitiveness every second of the entire day that I was there. Uh, and the other part that I, I hope doesn't get missed out on is the connectivity that Kirby had with every single player in the program while I was there. And just, you know, he was up there, he ran the meeting and just the energy and the uh, attention to detail didn't miss anything that was happening on the tape or on the field. Um, I, I was really impressed. And, uh, you know, you know, watching that and seeing the level of talent, obviously, that they've been able to recruit but bring them into a system that is so competitive, attention to detail, and then connected from the top down all the way across. Uh, it, it, it was fun to watch. Could you see that in him in 2007? Was that was that the, the, the same guy who, I mean, at the time he's, what, 32? And like, right. did you see back in 2007, oh, this guy could become – the the next version of Saban and maybe that's not even a fair thing to say of anyone but he's the closest <clears throat> thing that we've had to Saban obviously during this time right so what you know I'll tell a little bit longer story but as he and I were coming up I didn't really know each other and I just saw some of the jobs that he was getting that I wasn't getting right so you have an opinion of somebody that is either getting lucky or getting a good break here or a good break there so you never really know um how someone's ascending the way they're ascending. And I still remember distinctly about a month in at Bama and just watching Kirby in a meeting on the practice field, interacting with coach. And I'm like, this dude's the real deal. Like he has earned every single thing that he's got because he's really good. And I still distinctly remember, you know, uh, not proud of the thought that I had before he and I worked together. Um, but then when I got there and got to see him and interact with him and, you know, watch him do his thing, uh, it's, it's not a shock to me uh, after being there in person every day with it. I'm interested in your take on this. Um, Zach Arnett took over for the late Mike Leach. He kind of realized, he talked about this a lot. He realized during bowl prep, he's like, I don't have time to do game planning and, and to do play calling for, for this specific game. And he pretty much realized going through that <clears throat> process – I can't be the defensive play caller full time if I really want to put all of my effort into being a head coach of this program, doing all the CEO type things that go into it. And now, like today's day and age with NIL, Transfer Portal, like all these other things that coaches have to worry about, we're hearing a lot more coaches take a step back 
and say that they don't want to be the primary play caller on whatever their their specialty of the sure. ball, like whatever that is. What was your experience like as a head coach and kind of maybe maybe some of the recent changes to the sport has impacted that, but what was kind of your your experience with that process like? Uh, um, so it was still heavily involved in the defense. Um, you know, at times it would, you know, transition in and out. I would say uh, the two years that I was at Temple, heavily involved all day, every day, that was my level of expertise. So I would help out a great deal. The first year we were at the last place, kind of the same thing. You know, I had to get everything going, but I still had some time uh, to lend my expertise in the defensive room. The last two years really wasn't able to with COVID and the COVID transitions and all the other things that have been, you know, you know, created in the sport that now the head coach has to deal with. I, I wasn't able to uh, as much. And, uh, you know, I think it's um, where you are, where you're at in the program, the development phase, the building of it, um, the things that need attention to. It's going to be different every single place. And uh, so you just got to have confidence in the, the people that you surround yourself with um, and knowing all the different variances of need to be addressed um, to be able to do that. If you were advising a coach who's maybe 22, maybe it's a, maybe it's one of these guys who just gets done playing and they have a medical <laughs> retirement or something like that. They're like, I want to sure. get in coaching. I want to do this, this, and this. I'd eventually love to be the head coach of my own program someday. Sure. You're, you, the way that you grinded throughout your career yep. worked perfectly for you and allowed you to get a power five head coaching opportunity and do the things that ultimately you wanted to be able to do, of course. Right. How would you advise somebody in that spot who's maybe just kind of wondering like, man, do, do I take <clears throat> this position? How do I look at it here? Like, What's the best piece of advice you could give someone who wants to get to that level but just feels sure. like that mountain to climb is really steep? So the one of the biggest pieces is the the breadth and depth of experiences that I was able to have paid off for me, you know, and wearing so many different hats throughout my career and doing so many different things was beneficial. Um, and I just think in the, this day and age of college football, some guys are in too big of a hurry um, and they're not developing themselves. You know, they want their players to develop. They want to um, make sure they're afforded every opportunity to grow and all those kind of things but they're not doing that with themselves. So I would just, you know, slow down a little bit, you know, make sure you're able to do a lot of different things. Um, because when you get to be a head coach, there's so many things that you're going to have to do or make sure other people are doing, but you still need to have knowledge of the operation so that you can delegate in the manner that you want to see it done. And I think, you know, that, that part is critical. Is there anything you'd like to change? One big change you'd like to make with, with the sport can be anything, can be the, the tampering, can be the recruiting calendar, anything like that that you're just like, that that needs to be changed. We need to figure this out now. Sure. And I, I think, you know, the I think the portal piece, I don't see that. Um, I don't see that going away. Um, you know, I think that once that's, you know, been established, can't take you know, it the away. student athletes, you, I don't think you can take that back. You know, because in some instances, it's very beneficial, you know, for the student athlete to have that flexibility. So I don't think you're you're, you know, getting that one back. Um, I do think the calendar, um, you know, because it is, you know, I went on vacation in June, my first June vacation I've taken in 27 years, uh, went to Disney for a week and would still check my phone more than I probably should just because I'm used to it. 
Um, then we went for two weeks to the beach in July and maybe day four, day five, I put my phone down. Like we went out to the beach. I left my phone back at the crib, which as a head football coach or any football coach in college, you cannot do that. You got to be on 24 seven because if there's a recruit that calls or reaches out, you better, you got about three minutes or they're talking to somebody else. And uh, so I just think the calendar piece um, would be the biggest thing to be adjusted for everyone concerned, because there's a lot for the student athlete, the guys that are getting recruited, the obligations that they have to fulfill with this wide open calendar. Um, And then for the coaches too, just the um, quality of life, quality of family time, you know, those kind of things. I, 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 that would be one of the first things I would try to get changed if possible. This has been great. Uh, I, I want to get you out of here with some rapid fire. Just five questions. First thing that comes hey, to mind. Does that work for you? Sure. All right. Uh, would you ever want to be you, a, now? For, you didn't ask about my shirt. You asked about it before. Oh, you know what? Oh. That's right. That's right. Good point. Let's let's ask about the shirt. So, uh, Jeff, for those who can't see this at home, rocking a Detroit Lions shirt. Um, yep. I've got a little bit of bear stuff in the background. Haven't made any sort of comments that that it's that they're the loins or that they'll always be the loins. You've got a different connection to them than I do. As someone who's just like, yep. yeah, that's the team that that just gets beat up on constantly. I know they're in good shape now. Right. Uh, you're rocking a lion shirt for for a specific reason. Is that is that like the team where like when you're watching a typical NFL Sunday, you're like, all right, I've got probably the most invested with my guys over there. Well, the most that I have is the Eagles. Um, so I think the first day of training camp, I wore Eagles gear. And, uh, you know, I think I've got three starters on the on the defense for the Eagles and, you know, about half of the defensive staff for the Eagles are my guys. So, But a tradition that I started back when I was at Mississippi State is every single day of preseason camp, I wear a different T-shirt or hoodie or something um, of a team of NFL guys that my guys are playing at. And so I wore the Eagles the other day and then I'll take a selfie and send it to the guys. And actually, Jameer just just texted me back. Um, but Jameer Gibbs, uh, Alex Anzalone, Chauncey Gardner Johnson, all three of them played for me to it to it uh, the last place out or two at Florida and one at the last place I was at. And uh, you know, just have tremendous pride and seeing my guys living out their dream, having success, and uh, you know, just to have some kind of connection to let them know that somebody's out there pulling for them, praying for them, thinking of them, because camp ain't easy. And just to know that you've got um, somebody that you might not necessarily be thinking of in the moment has got your back, still loves you, still cares about you, still is here for you. You know, I I think that's important. And, uh, you know, it's important for me to represent my guys too. Okay. So you you bring up Jameer Gibbs. Like everybody was talking about like, oh, that pick was just kind of, oh, surprising to see the Lions make a move like that. They trade DeAndre Swift and, and, and then I'm thinking to myself, like, oh, yeah, it was really surprising. And then I'm like, oh, crap. I'm going to have to watch the Bears try and tackle that guy. That sucks. He's he's unbelievable. He's so and, good. And seeing him last year, like, like, like getting to watch uh, on a weekly basis, obviously getting to watch those Alabama games, you're just like, my gosh, if this if this guy doesn't become a thing in the NFL, I'd be surprised. I'm sure you've known that he's going to be a stud for a long yep. time. Yep. Uh, I've known it since we were recruiting him, and, you know, he played for us. Uh, the first two years, and then obviously the portal gets uh, opened, and you know the there's zero hard feelings. I've got love for him, his family, and uh, just you know wish him all the success in the world. Because not only the the player that everybody sees 
uh, on Saturdays or now on Sundays. He's unbelievable. He's such a great player. But the best thing about Jameer is as great of a player he is, he is 10 times a better human being. I mean, he is just a great person, humble, ridiculous work ethic, and great teammate, all of those things. Um, so I'm just I'm just so proud of him. You know, we had a great recruiting class that he came in on and uh, just just so fired up for for all of those guys uh, to have success wherever they are. Yeah, big things ahead for him, for sure. Yep. All right, rapid fire, five questions. Just first thing hey. that comes to mind, is that good? Sure. All right, uh, would you ever want to be a coordinator again, or, or would you only pursue a head coaching opportunity? Because you, you seem more like a head coach guy than a coordinator guy, if I'm being honest. Gotcha. I, I appreciate that. Um, I don't know. I've got a lot of uh, things that were uh, presented to me back December, January, and even parts of February. Um, but one of my biggest things was, I wanted to make sure all of my guys had jobs. I wasn't worried about myself back then, December, January, February. I wanted to make sure my people were taken care of. Um, so don't really know what it's going to be. Um, but I do know this. I absolutely love college football. Uh, I love the game. Um, my best experiences um, are just being able to help others reach their dreams and their goals. And, uh, you know, the relationships that I have with so many people are special to me. Okay. True or false. You interviewed for the UCF job after the 2015 or after the 2016 season, or no, it would have been after 15 going into 16, okay. which that was when Scott Frost got it. But your primary motivation was just getting closer to the Saturday down South offices here in Orlando. <laughs> So uh, the answer is false, okay. uh, right. but a story. So I saw the same rumors, right? And I think UCF is a great program. And I think it's, I know they brand themselves as the future of college football. I, I don't know that they're wrong because that, that is a great place and great fan base, great recruiting area, all of those things. But uh, on one of the posts that happened in 2015, Randy Shannon, who is the co-DC linebackers coach, he and I were sitting next to each other in the University of Florida defensive staff room. And there was a post that got sent to me, and it said, hey, uh, Jeff Collins is interviewing for the UCF head job, Randy Shannon to follow. And I showed it to Randy, and I'm like, All right, was I there this morning? Are you going this <laughs> afternoon? And obviously neither one of those uh, reports were accurate. Okay, we got to update the Wikipedia. But it's flattering page. to be to get mentioned because that's a you can see my UCF uh, helmet right there. Oh, nice. Yeah, because you did spend some time there. That, that I was the there two years. Yep. Yeah, the connection was made. Um, okay, as somebody who spent time in Atlanta, I always got to ask this: Is the varsity overrated, underrated, or properly rated? Uh, in this household, um, we have it rated pretty highly. So I'm going to go by the Collins family rated rating. And I'm going to say it's, it's appropriately rated. Some burger. of my best memories are, are at the varsity growing up. My mom's yeah. lunch breaks. She worked downtown Atlanta. Uh, you know, my grandparents would drive me over and meet her for lunch uh, at the varsity. So that is going to have a special place. Uh, and I don't know if you can top a frosted orange, regardless of what uh, milkshake establishment uh, you favor. Better than Chick-fil-A too. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair yeah. enough. Um, Brock Bowers had that play against you guys where he just ran away from the entire defense. Like that was one of the most insane plays I've, I've ever seen from an offensive player. The fact that it was a tight end doing that, just not fair. Uh, we have a running joke where we ask this question on the podcast. 
is Brock Bowers a human being? Yes or no? <laughs> so I met him when I went to Georgia's practice. So I know that he is a human being, right. but he could, he could play some football, man. Um, now that was a busted coverage. It, it happens uh, on the play that you're referring to, but once he got rolling, he was gone. And uh, just the, the things that the, the flexibility and multiplicity of things you could do with him um, are special. And then he, you know, kind of reminds me um, just of his presence and his humble nature of, of a Jameer. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Uh, that I can see like, and I haven't really been able to, to speak to Jameer a whole lot, but, you know, hearing Kirby speak about him, you're just like, oh, yeah, he, he's going to check every single box that an NFL team is looking yep. for. There's no doubt about it. Yep. Um, okay, last one for you. Please just tell me that you're still a windbreaker vest guy. Uh, that that look is, is so, like, you got to have a look as a head coach. I don't care who yep. you are. You talk about being yourself. You own that look. You rock that look. Yep. Th- that did not – just stay on the sideline. Please tell me that you're still going with that look and that's a regular part of your wardrobe. So absolutely, but I've expanded it. I go sleeveless hoodie uh, a lot too. Sleeveless t-shirt hoodie uh, is the thing I'm rocking the most. Um, but it, it, I, So my wife was a, an aspiring fashion designer. Uh, she went to Parsons School of Design in New York City. And we were sitting here watching because I've got all the all the games on repeat that just, I just sit down here in my man cave and have them repeat all the time. And she walked through and some like three or four coaches were rocking what I call my look. And I hope you call it my look as well. Yes. And my wife looks at me and she goes, they're stealing your swag. And I'm like, she doesn't really know much about football, but she does know if somebody's well-dressed or not. So I take that as a compliment. You should have gotten it trademarked. I think you could have. There's a lot of things I should have trademarked, but it's all good. If it helps the game and it helps others, let's go. Exactly. Exactly. Jeff, really appreciate the time, man. Oh, God. I think this merch, I think it does need to make a reappearance because it's getting a little frayed in the back. Um, And I think I could market it for you, whatever you need, and uh, get these things going again. The second we get those back in stock, I will make sure that you get one that is just like that, even better. And and next next time we do this, you'll be rocking a bear shirt because I'm sure you got that in the wardrobe as well. I right? do, yes. Yep. Love it, love it, perfect. Yeah, wish Appreciate you all the best. You, and yeah, we'll uh, we'll we'll have to do this again soon, man. All right, perfect. We're gonna do one football thing that you are excited to see in 2023. We are, by the way, here at SDS. Very shameless plug. We're so excited for football season that we have a loaded, loaded top 25 week on all four of our sites. Saturday down south, Saturday tradition, Saturday road, and yes, even our Pac-12 site, Saturday out west, which is still going. Tons and tons of great coverage for top twenty-five week. We don't do a preseason magazine. We do top twenty-five week. The total is like twenty-eight stories. I mean, we we rank everything. It's ranking season. That's what we do. Um, so yes, I always tell people just like waste an afternoon. Just you don't want to be working right now. It's dog days of summer. Just. Go check that out. Top 25 week, tons and tons of great coverage. Um, other things that I'm excited for, for 2023 that aren't realignment based. Obviously, Georgia, the quest to join Edward Seth territory. Is the Alabama dynasty dead? The Petrino Jimbo experiment, year one of Dion at Colorado. Pac-12 as a whole, a lot of Pac-12 talk on this pod. I realized that. I put five Pac-12 teams in my preseason top 15. Yeah, that's right. Going out with a bang. Uh, I'm pumped to watch Quinn Ewers cook at Texas. I hope he stays healthy. Joe Milton at Tennessee. I already said he's the most intriguing player in the SEC this year. 
the most talented team Brian Kelly's ever had. I mean, think about that. Like if that team with Mason Smith coming back, if that team can maximize the, this potential and if Brian Kelly is about to take another step, I think it's a really interesting thing that we'll be following all year, obviously. Rocket, Judkins, those guys being back, they were must-see TV last year. And of course, my doppelganger back at Kentucky, Liam Cohen running that offense with Devin Leary. Uh, that should be a lot of fun. And obviously year two of the Joe Moorhead era at Akron. Just things that personally I'm really excited to see this year. So I thought we would just take it to the Saturday Down South podcast Facebook group. And we're going to rip through a ton of these. Just one thing that you're excited to see. Simple as that. Uh, let's go to this one from Ross Elkins. Ross says, I'm excited to see all the new faces making an impact. Love that about college ball. Next guy up. Yeah, we have, I believe we have a list of top 25 freshmen this year, which I, I sometimes will find a way to wiggle out of that one. This year was one of those where I wasn't putting that one together. It's a difficult thing to, to try and come up with. But I mean, think about the guys that all of a sudden, boom, just burst onto the scene. The true freshman studs that just become like, oh my God, you think about getting to watch them for another three years what Bowers was a couple years ago, what Judkins was last year, what Perkins was last year, and seeing those new guys and seeing guys do things that, quite frankly, we don't see all the time. Yes, here for that take. Love it. Cubby Black says, my wife will quit nagging me about watching old highlights of games on YouTube. It gets the best of us, man. Uh, every once in a while, you just go down a rabbit hole and you're just like, yep, I'm going to watch this 20-minute condensed version of this game that happened a long time ago. And I do it when I'm trying to look up something for a story and I'll try and go back and watch a specific play that a guy made. And then the rabbit hole is right there because right when you pull that one up and you're looking, even if it's a game from last year, right? You're like looking at, oh, what about this run that AM had the second quarter against LSU? And then you see all these games lined up on the right and you're like, oh, well, there's the seven overtime game that AM and LSU had. I think Marler actually just watched that one, rewatched that one last week. Um, but very easy to go down that rabbit hole. Um, we've all been there, Kobe. Soon you'll have actual games to watch. Eric Beasley says, I'm excited to see Jaden Daniels, what he does in his second year. I am too. Really, really excited. And I know I, sound, I might sound like I'm kind of down on him because I didn't pick LSU to win the West. I didn't have him as my QB one in the SEC. KJ had that title for me, but I am really excited because like, I do think he showed a lot of those signs of the transfer quarterback. That is not total faith in the offense early. The faith develops later in the year. And even though he was technically a spring transfer, so we don't include him in that category of the post spring transfer, still kind of limited in what you're able to do. And I, and I think that seeing him get that full offseason is going to be really interesting. I don't think he's probably on that level in terms of upside to be second in the Heisman odds preseason. That's what it's up to, which is pretty crazy. Like Caleb Williams is the only person ahead of Jade Daniels in the preseason Heisman odds on FanDuel. But to me, like seeing what he can do this year, even if he's not even in that Heisman conversation and what it's going to do for LSU is super intriguing. He's got to take less hits. He can't be the quarterback who leads – FBS in rushes by a quarterback. That's that's just not a category that I think is sustainable. But then again, maybe that would lead to us seeing Garrett Nussmeyer and LSU having another stud 
at quarterback. Uh, but yeah, seeing Jaden Daniels in year two in that offense should be really interesting. Our guy Emery Picker says, I'm seriously excited to see the new teams in the Big 12. See how these teams that have done extremely well in group of five do against Big 12 teams. Kansas plays UCF, BYU, and Cincy this year. Kansas State plays UCF and Houston. So many potential good matchups with the new teams and Big 12 teams that have come up in the past few years. How about the Big 12, man? Like, Shout out to that conference for understanding the urgency and, and doing what the Pac-12 couldn't. I mean, the Big 12 very easily could have been in the spot that the Pac-12 was. And instead, they're like, all right, you know what? We're going to add conferences that that bring in value and getting a team like Houston that obviously, you know, from a geographic standpoint, getting in that market, we don't need to talk about the, the Big 12's impact in the state of Texas. But I think that's significant. I think getting the Orlando market, getting in the state of Florida is significant for the Big 12 as well. And like you kind of look at the Big 12 and what it's going to be next year, even in a post-Oklahoma, Texas world, and the way this is all going to shake out, it's going to be fun, man. That's going to be really fun. They got rivalries that people are going to be super dialed into. BYU and Utah is, I mean, I that's a college football bucket list game for me that I would love to be able to see one day. And you're just going to have that now. That's just going to be a part of your conference identity. Definitely a brand shift, but I, I agree with, with Emory 100%. Should be interesting starting this year, obviously, with that first wave of realignment with those teams, those new teams in the Big 12. Lauren Jeffords just says simply, Carson Beck. Uh, preaching to the choir, 100%. 100%. I don't know what the statistical expectation for him should be but i know it's high and i i know i'm gonna watch that first month and he's just gonna have these games where he's not playing it down in the fourth quarter it, maybe it's not totally 2018 to a levels of like oh you're just up 28 nothing in the middle of the first quarter and you're not gonna throw a pass in the second half but mm, i tend to think it'll be a little bit more like that and as much as i'm skeptical about the long-term the long-term upside of Mike Bobo, I am uh, I am not questioning the potential of Carson Beck. I have all the stock. I agree with that one as well. Drew Page says, I'm very excited to see Alabama coming to Kentucky. We could lose 63 to nothing, but it's not every day we get to play the Tide. Yeah, that's one of those weird SEC crossovers that you just, you kind of think about. Like, I guess, I guess this is the Bear Bryant Bowl, but you just don't see that. I even have a tough time looking at that on the schedule and picturing what that'll look like of Alabama going into Kentucky, just not two teams that match up very often. And Alabama basketball or Alabama football and Kentucky basketball have been so synonymous with each other. They were throughout the 2010s and now getting to see them play in football. You talk about what would be a field rush worthy game for specific programs. Cause I think those are dwindling a little bit. Tennessee beating Alabama last year, Kind of, kind of makes you realize that we don't have a whole lot of those that are that are up for grabs. That would be one of them. I'm not saying that's going to happen. I still think Alabama wins that game, but that will be an incredible atmosphere at Kroger Field. Austin Foster says, "I'm excited for cold beer and being gathered around the TV with the friends and copious amounts of junk food." What is the go-to cold beer for football season? Is it geographically based? I don't know. I, I'm legitimately asking that question. Do you go like, is there, is there a good luck cold beer? I don't think you can deviate from it. Your team wins that first game. 
you're not getting off that beer for a while. And I think you got to lose multiple in a row to probably switch to a new one. But yeah, um, copious amounts of junk food diet starts post winter for sure. That's, that's not coming around until February. I'm even at that place right now where I'm like, Oh crap. I kind of told myself like, you know, post post pregnancy, I was going to maybe, it's going to maybe get back to kind of ramping things up a little bit, watching the diet a little bit more. I'm not sitting here counting macros, but then I'm thinking to myself, fall Saturdays are rolling around. I'm going to kind of eat whatever. The diet will not be starting anytime soon. I'm bored with that take. Tyler Lynn says, I'm just ready to get in that lovely rhythm of weekly recaps of games, predictions, and game day snack prep with SEC Nation or game day playing in the background. Saturdays in the fall are all I need to be happy each season. Amen. Amen. Nothing more than that needs to be said. Tristan Smith, Tennessee football whooping Georgia, Florida, and Bama. Everybody would like me to burst Tristan's bubble here, right? Okay. Um, Tennessee's still trying to win at Florida for the first time in 20 years. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget that. Okay. I Look, Tennessee whooping Georgia. Mm, if that happens... You'll probably be hearing very loudly from Tristan. Um, but to think that they're at that place where they're whipping all three of those teams after beating two of them, hey, got over that hump. Huge to be able to do those, do that in, you know, when those rivalry jouts were so bad. Uh, big for Tennessee, whooping Georgia, Florida, and Bama. I'll I'll take the under on that one. Joshua Morris says, simply two words, Notre Dame. I'm really excited to see how Sam Hartman does in that offense. Notre Dame in the college ball playoff. Maybe I also have Notre Dame as a team that could have two losses by the end of September. Difficult schedule, really difficult schedule. They also have half of their schedule is going to be over by the end of September. They have a week zero game, week zero against Navy too. Tricky schedule, really, really tricky to kind of figure out what that looks like. And I think because they whooped Clemson, that there's talk about a whooping. They whooped Clemson last year, and now the the thought is kind of, oh, well, they're going to be in a good spot. Still got Ohio State at home, and when you're the team that's got three wins against the AP top five since 1999, not exactly penciling that in as a dub, but I agree. Seeing Sam Hartman in that offense, what that's going to look like is going to be really fun. Chris Tapley says, civil war between (laughs) Petrino and Jimbo. You know my thoughts on that. We'll move on from that one. Jonathan Mason says, Bazooka Joe Milton in NYC is a Heisman finalist. I'll eat all the crow if that happens. I will. I really, really will. If he's going to become more than Uncle Rico for Tennessee, I will be the first one patting him on the back, saying this guy's a stud. He's electric. I would love to see the best version of Joe Milton, which is not just throwing 90-yard bombs to Squirrel White and Dante Thornton and Ramel Keaton and Brew McCoy, it's being able to actually complete a 15-yard pass. If he's doing that, and if he's getting to New York, I will gladly sing his praises. Grant Haney says, the one actual football thing that I'm excited to see in 2023 is how many times the Iowa Notebook makes an appearance, reminding everyone of John James Fisher Jr.'s buyout down in Aggieland. Bet the over on that one. I mean, it's already the second reference to this pod, so yeah, bet the over on that. Carter Logan says, I'm excited about all the new QBs this year. Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State, Tennessee, Florida, to name a few that I'm looking forward to watching. New quarterbacks are fun. They are. They're really difficult when it comes to preseason rankings. And it makes 
a team feel like it has a ton of questions. I know we've talked about that a lot with Alabama. Um, probably lesser with those other teams there. I, Florida, we've still got questions, but lesser with Ohio State and Georgia and even Tennessee with Joe Milton getting preseason All-SEC love. But new quarterbacks are fun. I, I am fully here for that, and especially at places where they have so much talent and you know that you're probably going to get the best possible version of them. I think there's going to be a lot of new household names at the quarterback position this year. It's not just going to be Caleb Williams, Drake May, the familiar names. Um, and I think we're about to get a whole lot more. There would not surprise me at all if there are like three first-time starters in New York. Andrew DiGiacomo says, LSU versus Florida State, first big-time matchup of the season. That's the smart approach. Don't look past week one. Stick with week one. Everything after that, we'll, we'll deal with that when it comes. That's the coach speak. Corey Puckett says, Oklahoma and Texas in the Big 12 title game for their last season in the conference. Oh, man, what a send-off that would be. Um, Oklahoma getting preseason top 25, love. I have more of a problem with that than I do with Texas. And I'm lower on Texas. I think Texas wins the Big 12 this year. I do. But I do. I think I had Texas at 17 in my rankings just because, sorry, when you're an eight-win team, I'm not just going to instantly put you in the top 10. I don't do the thing where I predict a finish. I think that there is value in starting in the top 25 with an eight-month offseason and what that does for recruiting, for selling tickets. So that's why I try and base most of it on what happened the previous season. Oklahoma was not a very good football team the previous season. And as someone who picked them to go to last year's college football playoff, trust me when I say that was very frustrating to watch and watch that defense struggle as much as it did. Um, but yeah, Dylan Gabriel, seeing what he can do in that offense, hopefully maximizing his potential with Jeff Levy. He's got multiple years of eligibility left, which is a weird thought. That guy's been in college football since the first year of the playoff, as far as I'm concerned. Tony Moltz says, Cole Brews, school bands marching on the field, fans roaring, helmets clacking. It's football season, boys. Yep. Bands marching on the field, that's an underrated one. Very underrated. You go to a college football game, and it just sounds different than an NFL game. Bands are a big part of that. People need to talk about that more. Laura Doyle says, Nick Harbour, South Carolina fan. Um... I'm going to try and not spell his name horribly wrong just because N-Y-C-K, not used to that. Not used to that. Going to have to get my editor, Chris Wright, to, to make sure that I'm on top of that one. Uh, but I imagine he's going to become a household name very, very shortly here uh, at South Carolina. One of those guys who, man, you talk about the recruiting that Shane Beamer's done. And I know there have been the comps. Mark Ryan's thrown around the comps to the Will Muschamp era. But I still look at the job that that Beamer has done overhauling that recruiting and taking it to a different level. And Nick Harbour is one of those guys who could be part of this new wave at South Carolina. Tanner Starr says, everyone's too wrapped up in realignment to remember what really matters. This is the last year of the SEC on CBS with that classic music. I'm looking forward to that and soaking it in every time. Great point, Tanner. Great, great point. They're keeping the music with the Big Ten. Everybody realizes that, right? You need to emotionally prepare. You got a full year to emotionally prepare for that. I know you guys are already over the fact that Gary's going to be calling Big Ten games. You're not going to lose any sleep over that. But the music is going to the Big Ten. That's going to be weird. That's going to be really weird. It doesn't really sit well. Enjoy the fact that that big game feel, as I always talk about, 
You cannot manufacture it. It's there. When those drums drop, you absolutely know that it's there. SEC on CBS, one more year. Pour one out. Yeah, should have brought that up earlier when talking about the last the last season of this era of college football in 2023. That is that is another another element to this that will be changing in 2024. Tom Harlow says, Georgia, Florida, or Georgia at Tennessee don't care about conference games. Um, oh, don't care about out-of-conference games. I was about to say, man, you don't care about SEC games. I misread that. That's on me, Tom. So no other game on that Georgia schedule moves the needle for you. I get it. I get it. And of course, as Georgia fans would point out, the two most interesting games on that regular season schedule are both away from Athens. That's tough. That's really tough. I don't blame you for not really caring a whole lot about that conference schedule. It is not particularly good this year, but I'm going to guess Georgia has some moments that are more intriguing than just Georgia, Florida or Georgia, Tennessee. I'm just going to guess though. I do think they will go 12 and 0 and blow out the vast majority of their competition. Richard Ince, I think that's your last name, Richard. Richard says dogs three P it's a good thing to look forward to. Josh Lurie says what condiments will Tennessee fans throw on the field when they lose big games? Like when the Bulldogs roll into town, maybe Sriracha spicy. You can't throw Sriracha because it's so rare to find. Now our friends at Texas Pete, Great sriracha. I've been on a Texas Pete sriracha kick for about six months. It is phenomenal. If you can't get the traditional sriracha in the grocery store because there was that, there was that like shortage, like stop making it. I don't know the whole details about about that. Somebody's gonna have to look that up for me. But if you're just looking for sriracha in your grocery store, go to Texas Pete. And if you're a Tennessee fan, don't throw it onto a field. David Carter says, excited about the Gamecocks matchup against UT, UF, Mizzou, Texas A&M, and Clemson. Who are you not excited about, David? Um, Not excited about the UNC matchup. I'm excited about the UNC matchup. As I said last week, I have no problem with the fact that that game is the college game day choice. The week one slate, um, it's not particularly deep. It's just not. And that's okay because it's week one and college football is back. And that's fine. Um, but yeah, those those five being the the big headliners. What will South Carolina go in those five games? I do have my South Carolina crystal ball coming out. I'm already on record saying that I think they go they go at least eight and four, second in the East. So if you're looking at that stretch, and he's excited about the Mizzou game because South Carolina has lost four in a row against Mizzou, and potentially getting over that hump this year. Um, is probably something that South Carolina fans are thinking about a lot. Very pivotal game to get to that second place in the East. They're not getting the second place in the East if they don't beat Mizzou. But could they go three and two in that stretch with losses to Tennessee and Clemson? Wouldn't rule that out. But very, very much a defining stretch for this season of the way that year three plays out for Shane Beamer. Let's do two more here. Will Stewart says, excited to see if the Jimbo Petrino marriage can work and if the Aggie offense will match the talent on the roster sheet. You and me both, buddy. You and me both. Caleb Schaefer says, I'm excited to see some actual contenders in the SEC East this year. Can South Carolina pick up where they left off? Can Tennessee beat the dogs in Knoxville? Can Vandy win more than five total games with a very favorable schedule? Who knows? We're ending with Vandy, as we should. Yeah, I've been asked a lot lately. Can Vandy get bowl eligible this year? Get that sixth win? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no. I think the schedule is a little bit more difficult than what we're giving credit for. 
I'm just saying. I think people look at that Wake Forest game without Sam Hartman and they think, oh, that's just a pushover game. Eh, I'm not so sold on that. I still think Wake Forest could be a tricky matchup for Vandy. But if they get through if they get through non-conference play undefeated, because they got to go to UNLV, they've got the fight in Barry Odoms. Could have been the fight in Bobby Petrino's as well, but just the fight in Barry Odoms. If they can get through non-conference play undefeated, Vandy running it back, winning two games in SEC play again this year, give Clark Lee another extension if that happens. Okay, um, a little housekeeping. We've got good news. We're back to two pods a week. Back to two pods a week starting this week. More good news. The plan for Friday's pod. Greg McElroy, he's going to make his long overdue a long overdue debut on this podcast. Um, great stuff we're going to be able to get into with him. I'm excited for that. We're also going to do a full recap of the Johnny Manziel Netflix doc that dropped uh, on Tuesday. So here is your homework. I'm not sure that we're going to have a ton of spoilers. You kind of know how the Johnny Manziel story is gone, but I just kind of wanted to give everyone a heads up on that. Watch that before you listen to Friday's pod, uh, or at least the, the end of it when we'll be able to recap that. Until the season starts, though, expect pods to drop early Tuesday, early Friday. We'd like to be able to get those up late, late, late night the day before. But that's kind of when you can expect those hitting wherever you listen to your podcast. Two pods a week for the rest of the year. Beautiful. Love this time of year. Subscribe now. Leave us a five-star review. Follow us on X. Still not used to saying that. At the SDS pod, at CJ O'Gara, at Go So Hard. Join the Facebook group. Hear your name red on air with figuring out or bold and brash. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.